My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. Welcome back, and thank you for following this podcast into 2021. For our first episode of the new year, I spoke to a man with a true redemption story. Growing up in the northwest of England in the 1970s, Pastor Mick Fleming was abused and learned to the tragic death of his sister, all within the space of 48 hours. That trauma started a downward spiral that resulted in years of drug addiction funded by criminality. As a drug runner and debt collector, Mick was arrested for murder twice, armed robbery three times, and committed countless firearms offences. And just as he was about to inflict more pain and suffering on another victim, he saw the light, experiencing what he describes as a powerful religious moment. Since then, Pastor Mick has devoted his life to his community, passionately tackling poverty in his native Burnley with his charity, Church on the Streets Ministries, which you can find online at cops-ministries.com. When I saw the recent BBC News article on Mick's inspirational life story, I couldn't wait to speak to him. And I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. I know it's a difficult time, but I just thought I've got to try and get a wee chat with you, mate, just to, because it was just amazing, you know, that um, the report that went on the BBC and then, you know, what was a relatively, you know, nationally, a relatively unknown pastor doing hard work in Burnley and it exploded into, you know, everyone knowing who you are. I mean, everyone knew you up there, right, Mick? You, you know, you're a, a face on the street. People knew you. They know you now for what you, you do now and they knew you back in the day for what you did then. Yeah, it's a strange story, really, Jason, because it's kind of the the bad things that I did. I did. I, I kind of. I'm an addict. Uh, I'm in recovery. I'm eleven years, about eleven years clean, well, and I invented these personas, and I'd be different people in different places. So, A didn't know what who B was. B didn't know who C was. It, it, it was just an, a, a kind of well, very poorly, but I didn't know I was poorly, if you know what I mean. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, I was known in certain circles and then I'd, I'd disappear to another town and another town and moved around and it made me ill, you know, because it's almost living a schizophrenic type life, you know, different people in different places and, and I became them people. I, it's... It, it was almost it, like an actor, right? Almost like a persona. Much, yeah, yeah. It, and, and it becomes unsustainable and, uh, and in the end, uh, it became unsustainable for me as well. You know. So what was your drug, Mick, if you don't mind me asking? Crack was the main. I'd take anything, to be honest with you, but the, the one, I thought I'd find God when I took, when I, when I found crack. It just, everything, you know, everything everything changed uh, when I found crack. The the addiction went to the next level and then the the kind of psychological devastation to the mind uh, that happens with long-term crack use made me dangerous, you know. No so doubt. Mick, how long, were you, how long were you taking crack for? Oh, crack, I would say probably 12 years, 10, 12 years. And then that moment of clarity, you had a moment of clarity when you were meant to be collecting some dough from someone, didn't you? And you just, that was literally a turning point. It was literally the bottom of the, that was your bottom. It was the beginning. uh, It was the beginning of of a new journey, really. So, yeah, so I've gone to collect the debt and... uh, uh, the guy who I was supposed to be collecting the debt off, I was waiting for him, and he kind of approached, and he had two children yeah. with him. And as I looked down at their hands, there were lights shining off their hands, and it, and it, it made me feel sick, and I didn't know what was happening, and I was disorientated. I've never had feelings like it ever in my life. And uh, 
I jumped back into the car and I was sick. I was retching. And that was the beginning. I'd prayed. I prayed for the first time in my life, probably five minutes after that. And it was the very, very beginning of uh, a transformation in my life. It's interesting, um, Mick, just to mention that because everyone knows you're a pastor. But your history wasn't Bible classes and monasteries, was it? I mean, you were you were you were a drug runner and a debt collector, which we've just spoken yeah. about. But what I find really interesting about it is you had a certain amount of you know you were good at it. <laughs> you know, yeah. as much as you're good at what you do now, you were good at that too. You know, it, it feels like when you put your mind to something, you achieve. Yeah, I, I mean, you can turn your hand to anything. I think the the notion for me, what's come out of everything for me, is that uh, it's where you place the love, really, where you where you place it. You know, uh, I didn't like feelings. I didn't like feelings. That's why I took drugs because of the abuse in the past, and I tried to escape. But once I stopped escaping, that kind of uh, mindset, that determination, that ability was there because believe me it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of hard graft to get hundreds of pounds together every day to use crack cocaine and and you know this is a story that all addicts will tell you even if it's to get a tenor together sometimes for some people it takes hard work it takes in, uh, ingenuity it takes thinking it takes manipulation it takes all them things but all of them are skill sets that can be used for good and my notion from my story is that God turned that on its head and it was my heart that was changed and that motivated me in a completely different way. So I, I stepped out of the selfish uh, part of my life uh, and it was like literally what I did was I took the coat off and I put a new coat on. That was literally what happened. And Mick, do you, do you, it's interesting you said that, but the skill sets that you learned and gained, that you had to learn and gain in order to raise a couple hundred pound or a hundred pound a day to feed a crack addiction. I, I mean, I've spoken to addicts before, we've talked about this. Those are skill sets learned and banked, you know, and if you apply that to raising money to try and find the money for a fridge for someone like you do on a daily basis or, you know, whatever it is you're, you're helping people with, that that's the same talent, really. Yeah, so I'd say, so we've set a lot of food banks up. So basically... I go collect the food, I drop it off, somebody bags it up, I go pick it up, I go drop it off. Yeah. It's the same system when I'm drug dealing. It's no <laughs> different. Our food banks are uh, a product of uh, drug distribution. They are, whether people like them or not. That's great. Uh, I mean, that's how they work. But that's redemption, you see, Jason. That's that's it, that's being changed. I'm using what, what I believe God's given me. Yeah. For the good instead of for the bad. So it's not and a You turn up, Mick. Help. So you've got, because I do some stuff with the Refugee Community Kitchen in uh, Calais where we go on distro and you just turn up with a van and they know the points you're going to turn up and then roughly what time yeah. and they just come yeah. out of the woods. Is yeah. it the same principle? It's the very same principle. I have some fixed yeah. uh, in buildings. So we are church on the street. So basically that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, so I use, we've kind of took over other people's buildings, you know, kind of, but we turn up on the street exactly like that. Yeah. And, and who's cooking go, and helping? Who's cooking? Oh, so we have, I have a, same again, we have a network. Who's cooking up? We have a network. Don't we? So uh, it's the same thing. So we have to have uh, people that uh, they've got. Unfortunately, they've got certificates and things like that now. Uh, but uh, they'll prepare hot food in the houses. I go around, I pick it all up, 
and I take it out and then I distribute it. So would you do like, would you go, it's spag bowl and you do 20 portions, you do 20 portions and then they do it their yeah, own way? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's all voluntary. So all these guys are, are do, you know, doing it out of the goodness of the heart. So what also we've done, which I found remarkable is, so all the churches, different denominations that normally won't sit together would think they're all coming together uh, to serve in this ministry that we're doing. So I'm picking up from Catholics, from Methodists, from this, from that, from people who are not of faith, from uh, all over the community centres, and they're all coming together to, to serve one another and that's exciting that's, I mean, that's really that, exciting. I find that I mean desperation brings out the best and the worst in people yeah. and in the church you know the church is you know when you see you know you're probably working with you know with Sikhs who do a lot a lot of Sikh community do a lot of stuff you know they've got a thing called Langor where they have to pay that's back right. you know and they, and it's amazing to see that and to see different churches mixing up and working together yeah yeah it's quite remarkable I mean it's uh yeah, it's a good thing, and I, and I think when we're seeing that, we're starting to see change, we're starting to see society change, when you start to see the people coming together. And I, I think that's the key. Service is the key, I think, to happiness and contentment, however you address it up, whatever your religion is, however, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely a colossal giving back. Part. You mean yeah. to actually giving back and to, to you know, like, lang- like the, the Sikhs do that thing, Langle, where they have yeah. to serve. And I think yeah, it, it does something. It does something because what it does for me, it lets me know that I'm no better, but I'm no worse yeah. than than the people that I'm serving, and I feel the same. I feel I, I feel poor, I, I, and I don't mean that in poor as in like I haven't got anything. I feel the same as the people that I'm with, and it moves me to tears, and, and it puts me where I need to be emotionally. And it's it's real. It's not fake. It, it makes me equal, and it works. It works for me anyway. You know what, Mick? It's interesting because I don't think it's a selfless act in a way. You know, because you never feel better than when you're than when you're doing something for someone else. I mean, I want to talk to you about an, the story which broke my heart about you, which we'll get onto. But about when you're helping someone who you know might not help you, when you're helping someone who owes owes you nothing and you owe them nothing, but you help, and that puts you in such a strong place and whatever great things happen in your life that's almost like a payback you know yeah i think it's surrendering yes and it's surrendering everything that you are and going against you know kind of sometimes i have to go against my own nature you know sometimes i still feel angry sometimes i still feel, I feel like being violent sometimes but i'm not because i've got the i've got this thing inside me this that that overrides it and I never had that before, you know. It was it wasn't present before, and it is a payoff. You're absolutely right, you know. The the payoff is I've learned how to love because I can actually. It's easy, you know. It's really easy to give, but receiving is more difficult. But I can do both now, you know. I can have it back, and the fullness of love is not just giving out, giving out, giving out. Because all you'll do is drain yourself, and you won't be able to do anything. You'd be no good to nobody. That's interesting. But so you, you think it's also it. important to receive? Like if oh, you yeah. If you can't, it's, so I have a, so this is my theology, a time of theology really quickly, and we just I just call it, a, it's the two cup of coffee theology, and this is what giving should be in, in my mind, in, in my heart, and, and, and it's a case of like, I get loads of people coming to me and saying, you know, mate, uh, 
I bought that guy a cup of coffee that sits down outside McDonald's begging, and I felt much better. And I don't think that's right. You know, because what I think you should be doing is buying two cups of coffee and sitting down next to him and, and, and not standing above him, sitting down next to him and just talking to him, give him a fag, just have a conversation. You know, not one cup of coffee because that says I'm battling you. And if, if me and you were going to meet up, say, right, we're going to talk about this thing, Jason, right, we'll meet up for a coffee. Imagine me saying this to you, right, Jason, you just sit outside there on the wall, I'll just go in. And I go in, get your coffee, bring it out, give it to you, and then I go back in, in nice and warm, drink my coffee and read the paper. There's no power in that, is there? There's a difference. If I, Well, I wouldn't do that to you, so why should I do it to somebody who's sat out on the street? Whether they're trying to blag me or not, I don't care. You know, that's the notion and that's that's the love. And if I think that's the love of God that allows us to do that. And, and it turns our thinking on its head. It turns everything upside down. It, it's it's us instead of me. And Mick, do you see it as, as achievable? In that, like, obviously, Burnley's been pulled into poverty by COVID. People claiming out-of-work benefits in Burnley have doubled between May and March. And we can only assume that it's at least doubled again. And you're saying about smashing poverty in, on the streets of Burnley. Yeah. And can you can that be, you know, through the church of the street, I know there's massive support for you, bruv, and it's amazing. And I, I, I feel well inspired by you and your resilience. But do you think it's achievable? Do you, I mean, tell me your sort of, how do you, how do you see it happening? You know, in the next, it's really yeah, simple, Jason. So I'll tell you what uh, the secular society does. It keeps poverty going. So I'll tell you what happens in Burnley and happens all over the country. You take people, homeless people, addicted people, and you put them in supported accommodation. They go into that supported accommodation and it costs four to five hundred pounds a week to keep them there. If they want a job or want to leave because they've got a job or they're doing well, they're going to get made homeless because they're not going to be able to claim supported housing for them, right? So there's no intensive to get a job. There's no, we've had it, we've had people lifted off the streets, put in, you know, they get itself a nice suit, some shoes, go for a few interviews, get a job. Well, if you take the job, then you're homeless. You can't live here anymore. Well, where am I going to go? You have to go and find a private landlord. There is none. I don't have a thousand pound bond, blah, blah, blah. So the systems that are out there don't work. The food banks, the secular food banks, what the secular food banks do is say you can have four a year because we're not here to just feed you. We don't want to keep you in it, but it doesn't offer an alternative. So what we do is we look at poverty differently. So we run uh, uh, recovery groups and we're seeing so many people coming off uh, drugs, coming off alcohol with the support that we give them. That's pulling people out of poverty. We're empowering people. Uh, We're sorting out alternative accommodation. We're helping people with the debt in, in ways to get out of it, new inventive ways to get out of it. Let me tell you what poverty should do, Jason. Poverty should inspire people. It shouldn't make people go, oh, isn't it terrible? It should be inspirational. You should be able to, in your own spaces that you live in your, and walk through in your everyday life, you should be able to think, wow, how can I change that for those people? What can I do? How can that look better? And when poverty inspires, it no longer exists. And that's what we're doing. Wow. Your spiral into criminality mm. was triggered by a, a terrible event when you were 11. Yeah. Which, yeah. which you said a life disfigured in 48 hours. 
Um, mm. But what I'd like to talk about, which I find incredibly moving, is that that abuser, the, the man who abused you when you were 11, you befriended later on. Could you just tell us that story just one more time, Mick, just what happened? Yeah, so the abuse was coupled within a day of uh, my sister passing away. So it, the trauma, it was the trauma that led me into addiction because straight away I began to took uh, my mother's medication that she had for a bad bike. So I found an escape straight away. And that's what happened. That's how it, how it rolled uh, for me. Uh, so many years later, so I'm not a pastor. I'm not a full-on Christian, I don't suppose. I'm, I believe in God in a, in, a, in a way. I believe in Jesus. I believe I've got these thoughts and things running through my head and everything. And I'm, I realize that if I'm helping people, I feel a bit better. Yeah. But I'm still very angry. I've still got this massive pride inside me. I mean, colossal pride inside me that's eating me away. And I meet a guy, and uh, he's an alcoholic, and I got him a brew, and uh, I got him something to eat, and I helped him. And he eventually, he uh, he got sober. I got him to meetings and all sorts of different things, and... Uh, he died a couple of years later, but he died in a lot better place than he than he were when I met him. He, you know what I mean? He had his sanity. Yeah. He'd found God. He felt he'd find some forgiveness in his life. And, and you never told him. You never I told didn't him. Tell him you no, I didn't tell him. He, he was he was my abuser. I, there's things I haven't said in that story. You know what I mean? And maybe some I will, and some I, some I never will. But uh, he hadn't had a, an easy life because of what he'd done. Because, uh, let me put it that way. Yeah. But, you know, some people would say, well, good. Do you know what I mean? Good. You know, he needed to suffer and blah, blah, blah. But I, my take on forgiveness isn't that it's saying that what the person's done is right. It's saying that I'm not going to be controlled or I'll live in somebody else's sin. I'm not going to live in that. Do you know what I mean? It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. I'm not going to live in it. And and I notice kind of what happens as a pastor now when I, I unfortunately attend many, many, many suicides and deaths and things like that. And what happens is human beings steal other people's grief. It's not about the family. It's not about the person that passed away. It's about me. And that destroys them. They actually latch on to something painful deliberately to, I'm talking about friends and things like that. It's my friend that's died. It's not this person and the consequences of that is mine and they take ownership of it. I'm not taking ownership of somebody else's sin. Do you know what though, Mick? But what I find so amazing about that story is it's a stupid um, comparison, but when I run a marathon, I want the medal at the end of it. I want people to clap me for doing it. My brother, when he couldn't get onto the marathon, he just ran 26.2 miles on his jacks. That really blew my mind because I was like, well, why would you do that? And he said, because I know I've run it. And that seems yeah. to be like you, Mick. I think, Jason, honestly and truthfully, I think that uh, this is for me, you know. If if I do God's work, it's going to be painful, you know. It's going to hurt sometimes, you know. But what comes out of it is always good. And the more you walk away from accolades, the more you kind of think, the kind of more you're uplifted, not by yourself or not by your pride. And so when I when I was talking about earlier when I was full of pride and and full of anger and pain inside. So I, I ended up in a homeless hostel. And this is how how crazy 
at my world wars and I had no money and I'm on benefits, some kind of benefit for the first time in my life. And they said, they said, uh, so I said, how much will I get then? They said, 150 quid. I said, 150 quid a week. How am I supposed to manage on that? And they said, no, it's a fortnight. Are you joking? Right. So what I did, the first time I got paid, I went and bought a suit and a shiny pair of shoes and no food, no nothing. And I put them on because I wanted other people. It wasn't that I wanted to feel, but I wanted other people to say, oh, he's doing all right. And I was, I, I didn't get on a bus because I didn't want people to think I didn't have a car. So I didn't want people to see me weak, you know, and if a little bit about my past and things like that, I, I, if I was seen to be weak, I'd, I'd have been vulnerable, wouldn't I? And I was a so Mick, when you were when you were writing the when you were living the life and right in the middle of that world of the the debt collecting and drug running and mm. <clears throat> were the periods of time when you were relatively wealthy or were you talking about you yeah. know you had five grand in cash and then it would go and then you'd be back? No, to where I, you were. I was very wealthy, and the pride comes from that a little bit too. <sighs> the pride comes from my own sin, I think, and my own fears, and and kind of almost. Uh, built into me from from my abuse nobody's going to hurt me again i'm going to show you i can't be seen to be weak uh and i think that's why i created different scenarios for myself in different towns so with the drugs i'd go from uh manchester liverpool to glasgow and that's where i worked predominantly in them areas but nobody knew from glasgow knew what i were doing in manchester basically and very few People in Liverpool knew what I was doing in Glasgow. And it was almost, I'd, I'd even wear different clothes. So in Glasgow, I'd wear more trackies and trainers. You know, in Manchester, I'd wear more suits. It, 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 I was poorly. I just didn't know it. Yeah. You know, I thought I were, I, I was always one step ahead of everything, but deliberately. And, you know, when I was a little boy growing up, I didn't want to be good. I used to put a, a jacket over the back of a chair and practice pickpocketing. At 11 and 12 years old I wanted to be bad that's all I wanted to be and you know there's something psychological there isn't there you know I, I didn't have any aspirations to do anything good I just wanted to be something something kind of fascinating and Mick was that after 11 was that after, after yeah. yeah yeah and yeah. what about before Mick <laughs> so before I, I, I was much a, a mummy's boy so I had like, a lot of sisters and I was like uh, the only boy. So very close to my mum and I was very naive. So I kind of an 11-year-old, like a 7-year-old, I guess. I didn't know. I knew nothing really. But I still, I think within me, I still have this thing of uh, I was always lonely when I look back, even before. I felt like I didn't quite fit in. And I sometimes wondered... You know, did I, did I look like, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but with the abuse, did I look like I was a target because of how I was or how I, I don't know, and, and I'll probably never know that, but I definitely always felt a little bit different and a bit like I didn't fit in, even though I had friends and stuff. And I hear that over and over again with people who are addicts, you know, it seems to be a common theme, and I definitely felt like that. Stood on the edge of the schoolyard watching everybody else play, and not knowing how to play. Mick, that descent into addiction and drugs, it's, I've found, especially with younger people, that that becomes their tribe as well. It's like when you don't yeah. fit in, there is a community, isn't there? Or were you just yeah. on your jacks? Were you mostly on your own? A lot of the time we're on my own, but the, 
the social aspect of using, say, for example, uh, snorting cocaine and drinking, that give me a kind of uh, a fit in. Yeah, I felt more confident fit in. But the other kind of, I mean, I had a different kind of drug use. I didn't want people to see me smoking crack, really, because I thought I was better than what I really was. You know, I was a better class of addict. <laughs> yeah. so I had to hide myself away smoking crack. So when I was going what I would call working and doing these different things, I was a completely different person. It was, you know, I was just a different person. I was different people doing different things. And I think that... It kept me uh, out of a lot of trouble, really. I would think it's it kept me safe in some kind of a way. But it's been it hasn't it didn't just break overnight. All that you know, I've, I've carried that kind of how I've lived my life a long time. Do you know? And uh, it's been a slow process, and I'm still in it. Can you tell us just one little thing? Just at the end, there's two things I just wanted to finish on. But one is that amazing. Um, there's a department store near to you in Rochdale. I think it's called Amos. Do you know about that? It's like a three. It's a three-tier department store that sells um, furniture for, to yeah. raise money for the homeless. Yeah, it's in, it's in Burnley. There's it's one in Burnley. Burnley as well. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing idea. Does it? Does it work? Is it working? Well, it's, what it does is it works for some because what they do is they take uh, they take the benefits off the person that's coming in and then they give them I think it's about it used to be £25 a week uh, and, and they give you accommodation to stay in so you get pocket money and then you work in this process of uh, picking up collecting and and selling so basically you're putting addicts to work and uh, what I'd say is it, it makes it makes revenue there's no doubt about it it's, it, it makes a lot of revenue it's success rates I couldn't comment on because because I don't know the figures but yeah. just working isn't enough yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to fix it because because there's no mental there's no work done no, no it, it needs to be more so for me listen for me this is what I've seen with addiction is you've got the physical and the emotional but if you like the spiritual Right, and I'm not saying you've got to become uh, like me, a Christian, you know what I mean? I wish everybody would, but that's up to them. Yeah. But what I'm saying is if you negate the spiritual side of any recovery, you will fail yeah. because what will happen is you'll, you'll keep the bitterness. You won't have the forgiveness. You'll keep the resentment, and that will always take you back to using. And you, you're not working 24 hours a day. Yeah. You can work yourself to death, but it's, you, you're led on your own at midnight in your own bed. Yeah. With your mind revolving, you know, spinning and spinning, thinking over all sorts. He said this, she said, and it doesn't work. You need all three. You need okay, all three. Mate, it's been fascinating talking to you, Mick. And you're also a Fleming, aren't you? Born in 66. <laughs> there you go, son. You've got a good name, Jason. You've got a good yes, name. Yes, bro. <laughs> yes, mate. And I can't tell you how honoured I am to talk to you, Mick. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Jason, and God bless you. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. I can, I can tell where your heart is, mate. Thank you, mate. I can tell you mean what you say, and thank you. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes.